0: The the mornings where we celebrate communion the second Sunday of the month, we we, uh, do not have children's church. Normally at this time we would dismiss children's church. Um, But on the second Sunday, um, we just ask that families stay together, worship together. This is a great opportunity for parents to uh, instruct children and the the priority and the importance of worshiping together and also perhaps even explain a little bit of what is communion and why do we why do we take it and what's it all about and so um, today is a day where everybody will stay together and we will worship together. Uh, I know sometimes kids are a little more active at least than I am but there are some materials on the back pew if you uh, If you need, get up and get them, and uh, feel free to move around as you see fit. So, would you uh, join me in prayer as we uh, prepare to hear God's Word? Lord, let your Spirit teach us. All things, and bring to our remembrance all that you have said to us, that the word of Christ may dwell richly in us in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. Lord, grant that we may pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. And may we hold fast to your word that has been preached to us and not believe in vain. Lord, make us ready and competent in the Scriptures that we may be competent, equipped for every good work, and being well-trained for the kingdom of heaven. May we, like a good master of the house, bring forth out of our treasure what is new and what is old. And this we ask for Christ's sake. Amen. You want to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 1 as we continue in our study in the Gospel of Luke. We are making our way through. Chapter one is a really long chapter, but we're getting there. So when we when we look around our culture, when we look around society today, well, I mean, just when we look around our world—not just our culture—when we look around the world, it's really difficult to conclude anything other than the fact that something's broken. If you don't believe me, turn on the news. All right, something's broken. I was getting my hair cut one day. You can tell it's probably a long time ago, but I was getting my hair cut one day, and I mentioned to the person who was doing the deed, um, "Wow, things seem to be really broken." And she said, "No, I don't think so." And I just kind of—I didn't know how to respond to that, you know, because it just kind of caught me off guard. It's like, "No, things are really broken." And I think when we consider then things are broken we have to ask ourselves why or what is the problem, what is actually broken, because if you don't know why it's broken, it's going to be really hard to fix. It's hard to apply a remedy if you don't know the cause of being broken. And so, you know, I I read news and listen to various things that are going on, and there are all sorts of reasons, there are all sorts of suggestions as to what is broken. And I've heard suggestions such as well, here's what's broken. What's broken is uh, it's economic. In other words, too much wealth is given to too few people, and there is too much disparity between the haves and the have-nots. And if we just close that gap between the haves and the have-nots, maybe bring the haves down a little bit in order to bring the have-nots up a little bit, and we had an econo- a more equal distribution of of wealth, not just here in the States, but globally, then we would be on an an equal footing and that would do away with much of the problems that we we deal with. Now, it certainly is one idea or one solution. I also just read this week that of uh, an increase in Western Europe in molestation and rape and the problem was, according to this article, global warming. But you can see we're applying. We're saying something's broken, and we're saying why is it broken, and we're applying some sort of reason as to. So we're saying, well, this type of activity is is wrong. It's not. It should not be going on. So what's the salute or what's the problem? The problem is is that it's just too hot out, and so therefore you're going to come up with a different type of solution, aren't you? If you, if the problem is economic, your solution is going to be. You're, you're going to have a certain set of solutions. Likewise, if your problem is just too hot, obviously those economic people, they've got, they've got it all wrong. What we need to do is we need to cool the temperatures and then we'll be okay. So you can see how you assess the problem is going to affect what your remedy is going to, to entail. And so this is important because when we come to the person of Christ, all of us are saying things are broken. And so when we come to the person of Christ, people will say, well, here's... Issue well, Christ. Then, if my worldview, or if my view is that our problem is economic, then I'm going to see Christ perhaps as the um, great venture capitalist, I guess, or perhaps the great um, redistributor of of assets. He's the one who came to make everything give the the halves a little bit more and take away from the have nots. And that's what Christ came to do because that's our problem. Our problem is economic. And so therefore what we will do is we will make everybody much more equal or perhaps give everybody some sort of a loan or something like that. Likewise, if our problem is, uh, is environmental, perhaps Christ came to, to help bring us back to a more simple lifestyle. Uh, one where we are consuming much, much less energy and um, being less irresponsible with how we manage the environment basically everybody conscripts Christ to for their own particular point of view so why why what is Christ's purpose why did he come what is the purpose for the incarnation If you don't think anything's wrong, then I suppose Christ came and he's a good example. And there are a lot of people who say, well, our problems are simply that, you know, we have bad examples. Well, Christ, that's the good example. That's why he came, to give us a good example. What's the problem? The problem is we don't have a good example. What's the the solution? The solution is Jesus Christ, who provides a good good, um, example for us to follow. And maybe then we can all just get along. So what we want to do then is... Consider then, why the Incarnation? And I think we'll get a glimpse of that today. As we go back to the text, after all, if we're going to try to determine why Jesus, what purpose or what role does He play, what is His function, why did He come to the earth, why was He ever born in the first place, I suppose one of the best places to go is to those who actually lived with Him and uh, were taught by Him and who actually saw Him and touched Him and walked with Him. And so we come to the Gospel of Luke today. And we want to look at, perhaps, what is the purpose of the Incarnation. Well, before we get going, let me just give you some, some review and tell you where, describe where we have been. And where we have been is, we've looked, for, first of all, at Luke's purpose, why he wrote this Gospel. And he wrote it to a guy by the name of Theophilus. And basically, it's so that you might believe is you might believe well, all that has been uh, written about the person of Jesus Christ. And then we've moved along and we've seen these two miraculous births, um, or, two miraculous, or these birth announcements regarding two miraculous births. The first one was to, uh, uh, to Elizabeth. Uh, John the Baptist was going to be born to her. And today we'll look at that. Actually, he's born today. Well, not today. You know what I mean in our text today. Um, but she was born. he was born to a woman who basically was beyond childbearing age. And so this was certainly a miraculous birth. And then the, the, the birth of Christ, born to a virgin. And we've also seen these two children meet. They meet um, while still in the womb. And when... John meets Jesus, he leaps for joy. So that's kind of where that's where we've been. And then last week we saw Mary's song of praise, which we call the Magnificat. And today then, here's where I hope to go today. Um, I, our, our text today begins and ends with the person of John the Baptist. So they serve kind of this, this discussion or this... Um, illumination of who John the Baptist was begins our text and it ends our text. And everything in between is all about Jesus Christ, which is kind of interesting because the song that we're going to to look at today, it's a song by Zacharias and it's singing in celebration of the birth of his son, but he doesn't really sing much about his son. He spends most of his time dealing with person of jesus christ and so our text begins and ends with john the baptist inside the book then is a description of god's plan to address mankind mankind's most pressing need And so why do we need this passage of text The of text will be necessary for us because everybody has a solution as to why Christ came. But we need to understand why the incarnation in order for us to see what is our need. We need a solid understanding of what is the problem and what is God's provision. And our text today, I believe, provides that well. So if you will... Join with me as we follow along with me as we read in Luke chapter 1, verses 56 through 80. Luke chapter 1, verses 56 through 80. I'm sorry, let me say 57 through 80. Luke chapter 1, verse 57 through 80. This is the Word of God. Grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve Him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before Him all of our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, and you will be, go before the Lord to prepare His ways, to give knowledge of salvation to His people in the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. This concludes the reading of God's holy and inerrant word of God. Well, we begin now with this idea of the naming of John the Baptist. and. One of the questions that I often ask myself in a passage of text is, and you should ask yourself when you read the Bible or study the scripture, ask yourself questions. They can even be ridiculous questions, but ask questions. And one of the questions that I asked myself when I read this is, why is this even here? And I ask that. That's a question that's common to me. I I ask that a lot. Why is this text here? Why do we have this? Why was this important to write? But this one especially jumped out to me because why is it important for Luke to tell us or to inform his benefactor, patron, Theophilus, why was it important for Luke to tell Theophilus and us about the naming of John the Baptist? That just kind of stood out to me. And so... I came up with a variety of different solutions, and believe me, you don't want to hear them all. Perhaps there are at least two somewhat reasonable solutions or answers to the question, and the first one is it just provides simple background material. All it is is introducing, after all, Zachariah is about to sing a song, He's about to prophesy by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And how is that possible? Because we all know what happened to Zechariah, don't we? He was mute. So how did mute Zechariah get unmuted? And so perhaps all that's going on here is Luke is just trying to fill in some background material and just say, tell us how muted Luke or muted Zacharias got unmuted to be able to sing this song and just to give us some general background information. I suppose that could be, but that was fairly unsatisfactory to me so I Thought and dug a little bit deeper. And then I began to, as I came across, especially verse 80, where it says, And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. And I began to consider a few other things that are clues that are given to us in the text. I began to um, develop an answer to my question. Why do, why do we even have this? It's interesting to me because God named John. Zachariah didn't name John. Elizabeth didn't name John. It was fairly common in those days for the woman to name the child. You see this all the way back in, in Genesis and uh, the father, the, the, mother, the wives of Jacob were giving their kids names. And so it wasn't uncommon for a uh child to be named by the mother, nor was it uncommon, and especially very common, to have a child named after the father or the grandfather. And yet, Zechariah did not give this, this kid his name, nor did Elizabeth give this child his name. The name came from God, and this, to me, I believe, is significant. And so the story is, is that on the eighth day, when they went to circumcise him, this was basically, this was Jewish custom. They're following the tradition uh, that was handed down by, uh, by God to Abraham on the eighth day. They came to circumcise him, and they were asking him his name. And Elizabeth said, and by the way, the text, very adamantly, his name is John. That's his name. Or actually, I think it's, a, it's actually a future tense. His name will be John. She is absolutely certain that Zachariah is going to back her up. His name will be John. Well, they're a little confused and they say, well, we don't know. There's no John in your, in your lineage. Maybe we should get a second opinion. Let's talk to Dad. Dad, what do you think? And Newt Zachariah asked for a tablet or a signal to get a tablet, basically a piece of wood with some wax on it, and he affirms Elizabeth's designation. Oh, his name is John. So his name comes from God, and it is, I think, significant to note then that in Scripture, names generally have meaning, but. More than that, the ability to name something is saying that I have authority over that individual or over that being. For instance, so to name something is to exercise authority. It is to make a claim on that individual, on that person, or perhaps on that creature. For instance, Adam, name the animals. You have authority over the animals of the earth. Now go name them. We see various kings throughout uh, biblical, the biblical record they of, of naming and changing the names of individuals. In other words, basically, you are under my authority now. Being under my authority, you are no longer Daniel. You are Belshazzar. No longer are you Daniel. That's your old name. Now that you're under my authority, now that you're under my command, now that you belong to me, I am about to change your name. I'm going to give you a different name. And so naming has the... Um the idea then that the one who names is the one who has authority. John's name comes from God. God claims him for his purposes. That I find again it's interesting in chapter eighty and the, or verse eighty. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. In other words, John grew up in a very traditional Jewish household. His dad was a priest. And Zechariah was going to be a priest. That's what he would have done. He would have grown up and he was of the tribe of Levi. He would have followed in his father's footsteps and as being of a particular tribe, he would have followed and become a priest. And God says, no, you're not going to be a priest. I'm going to set you apart. I'm going to remove you from your, from your customs. And I'm going to train you and grow you. And you are going to be utterly separate from the religious system in which you are born and I am going to be the one who trains you and I'm going to be the one who educates you and I am going to set you apart from that old religious system. In doing so, you will be able to perceive its weaknesses and call people out of it. So we have this idea here then because that John... has been set apart for God's purposes. And I think here we get at the root or the core as of to why we have this particular passage of text. There are probably a number of other answers to my question, why do we have this? But I would suggest that certainly we can include this idea that God has set him apart for his purposes. And certainly after his birth and after Zachariah receives his voice back and he begins to speak praises to God, people begin to wonder and they say, what kind of child will this be? for the hand of the Lord was with him. What kind of child will this be? Well, I'm glad you asked. Because Zechariah answers that in his song. And so this song that begins in verse 67 is as the third of five songs in the first two chapters of the book of Luke. We've talked about how Luke is, uh, uh, records numerous hymns The first one we saw was by Elizabeth, the second one by Mary, this third one, then is by Zachariah. As we go along, we'll see one from Simeon, and we'll see one from Anna, but five songs are included in the first two chapters of the book of Luke, all of them surrounding the birth of these children, who will either point John, who will point the way to the Messiah, or they are songs about the Messiah who will come and save us. And so, as we begin to look at Zachariah's song, we should note... First note, that, and his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying... So the first thing we should note, then, is that whatever this song is, it is the result of Zechariah being filled with the Holy Spirit. And I mentioned to you at the very beginning, when we started in the book of Luke, that the Holy Spirit is a primary player in Luke's gospel. Luke is very focused upon the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has been everywhere so far. We really haven't done a sermon yet where we have not talked about the Holy Spirit. We're only, what, 60 verses into this chapter, into this book. And the Holy Spirit has been all over the book. Just I'm going to keep reminding you of this. The Holy Spirit is all all over the book of Luke. Luke is fascinated by the Holy Spirit. And so Zechariah, filled with the Holy Spirit, begins to speak. And again, this is a common theme in the book of Luke and in the book of Acts. Remember, Luke also wrote Acts. So in Luke Acts, we see this idea of proclamation being the result of being filled with the Holy Spirit. When a person is filled with the Holy Spirit, they proclaim God's truth. This is one of the evidences then that Luke gives us of what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. There are all sorts of other evidences that that Luke talks about. But this certainly um, is perhaps the most frequent way that, that Luke describes being filled with the Holy Spirit. Then they speak the truth. They begin to speak the words of God. We see on the day of Pentecost, Peter being filled with the Holy Spirit. What does he do? He preached a sermon. Paul, being kind of followed around by this demon-possessed individual, filled with the Holy Spirit, turns around and rebukes that demon Basically speaking God's truth. And so we see this idea of being filled with the Holy Spirit and proclamation of God's word going hand in hand in the book of Luke. And so Zecharias being filled with the Holy Spirit speaks out the word of God. And the next thing we see is that Zechariah, filled with the Holy Spirit, began to prophesy. And so There's a lot of questions as to what is prophecy in the New Testament, and I certainly am not going to spend huge amount of time here dealing with that question, but this is a good place to pause for a moment and at least begin to get a handle on what is prophecy in the New Testament, or oh, well, even biblical prophecy, what is it? Because so oftentimes we consider, well, it's... Uh, talking about what's going to happen in the future. And certainly there is an element of future telling in uh, prophetic utterances throughout the Bible, saying this is what's going to happen in the future. And certainly in Zechariah's prophecy that we're going to read here today, there is some element of future prediction, if you will. But as as I looked at this, It's, less, it's not so much about what's going to happen in the future, and it is probably better described than as an inspired commentary on the events. In other words, all of these events began to happen. John got born. How did John get born? John got born to a woman who was, who was beyond the, the ability to, to conceive uh, by a, basically an older couple who are beyond childbearing years, and John was born to this type of a family. He, uh, when uh, when Zechariah doubted, he was, he was uh, muted by an angel. Uh, then he's given birth, he's given a name outside of the family. And so Zechariah looks at this and says, you know, this isn't normal. What's going on here? And so here we begin to see the prophecy in a in this context is the inspired interpretation of events. And for those of us who may not be cessationists, I think this is a good definition of what New Testament prophecy is. Not so much saying, oh, if you do this, this is what's going to happen to you in the future or whatever. But simply, I'm seeing certain certain cultural events, and I know how to see them from a God, uh, God's perspective. I know how to interpret them from a divine perspective. I see what God is doing. But perhaps we could use some people today, as we look around um, our nation, and we see what's going on. And it's easy to get wrapped up in the politics of everything that's going on and easy to get wrapped up in the emotion. But perhaps what we need is we need some sound individuals to come along and say, here is what's going on. Here is a divine perspective of what's going on in our nation and in our culture. And so Zachariah then provides this divine or this inspired commentary on the events. Like I said, there are some future events involved, but Zechariah understands the birth of John as a sure sign that God's plan of salvation is moving towards its completion. In other words, this isn't just a miracle for the sake of having a miracle. This isn't just some guy, some kid being born to a couple that shouldn't have a kid born to them. This is something beyond that. Zechariah understands the birth of John as being a sign that God is fulfilling his long-promised promises. That the promises of God are moving towards their, their, their fulfillment, and he begins his song. He begins his psalm with a praise: "Blessed be the Lord God of Israel." That's a great place to start praise. We start praise with "Blessed be the God, blessed be the name of the Lord." And now the bulk of the hymn. So this is a psalm of praise. The bulk of the hymn has to do with Jesus. It has not very little to do with John which is kind of surprising. If you have a child and you're going to sing a song, you would probably sing a song about the child that just was born to you. But Zachariah sings a song about somebody else's kid who's not even born yet. I'll demonstrate in just a moment how we know that this psalm is not so much about um, John the Baptist, but it is mostly about the child that Mary is carrying. But John points to that. John, The birth of John is is pointing to the fact that God's redemptive plan is right on track. And so, he begins with praise and he says this, Blessed be the Lord God of, of Israel. For, in other words, here's why we're blessing God. There's a reason why we're blessing God. I'm not just saying bless God as some sort of rote statement because I've got nothing else to say. But blessed be God because God has done something. And what exactly is it that God has done? Here's what God has done. He has visited His people. We should note then that God visiting His people is occurring through His Son. God visits His people. In what way does God visit His people? He's going to visit His people through His Son, Jesus Christ. And we should uh, take note of this idea of visitation, for it has a rich Old Testament history. In fact, we should not be surprised that all of Zachariah's song is filled with Old Testament imagery, because he is an Old Testament priest. Zechariah knows the Hebrew scriptures. That's his job. So when Zechariah sings, he's going to sing out of what he knows. And so when Zechariah sings out of what he knows, he's going to use all sorts of Old Testament or uh, all sorts of language that uh, that is taken out of the Hebrew scriptures. And so when he says, for God has visited his people, we see a rich heritage of God visiting his people through the scriptures. When God visits his people, something happens. And this idea of God visiting his people can be something negative or it can be positive. In other words, God can visit his, God can visit somebody and it can be for judgment. You don't want that. On the other hand, God can visit his people and it can be something positive. And I think I put a couple of passages of scripture up there. Do I have... It? There we go. Ruth 1.6 And then she arose with her daughters-in-law her to daughters-in-law return from the country of Moab for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited His people and given them food. Ruth 1.6 What had happened? God had visited His people. What was the result? The drought ended and food was provided. Genesis 50.24 And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you. And bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. In other words, God, I'm going to die, but God is going to visit you. And when God visits you, something's going to happen. What is it that's going to happen? You're going to be exited. exited. You're going to encounter the exodus. God is going to free you from your slavery. God is going to redeem you from your bondage when God visits. So, God, Zechariah, now sings that God has visited His people. And if you don't mind, I'm going to step down here. I'm going to steal these notes right here. What you guys have is better than what I have, so... So God visits His people, and in this sense, God visits His people through the working of His Son, Jesus Christ. But God visits His people again. When he, when he does so, He does not do so for no reason. When God shows up, God does stuff. And one of the things, then, as Zachariah says, is blessed be the Lord God of Israel. Why? He has visited His people and redeemed His people. So when God visits, God is redeeming. Now, this is an interesting statement, don't you think? For he has visited and redeemed his people. We can certainly understand how he has visited his people. He has visited. That makes sense. But what about this idea that he's redeemed his people? Nobody's been redeemed yet. Have you noticed that? God has visited and God has redeemed. Who's been redeemed? Nobody. The birth of John the Baptist did not bring redemption for anybody. And yet. Zechariah sings that God has redeemed his people. If you were here last week, what do you think is going on here? Do you remember? Can you remember all the way back to last week? Yeah, there you go. The prophetic perfect. All right. So this is actually written in a, a verb tense where we would say this is an event that has happened. It's, in Greek, it's an aorist. This is a, it's just an event that has happened. And yet... Redemption has not happened. And so when we ask ourselves, how are these terms used? How is this verb test being used? Biblical scholars ascribe to this what we would call, they would call, I wouldn't lump myself into that category, what they would call the prophetic perfect. Or in this case, the prophetic aorist. But it's just simply saying that we are speaking of something that's future as though it has already happened. In other words, its future accomplishment is so certain that we can speak of it in the present tense or we can speak of it as already occurring. So we can say that redemption because of John the Baptist being born, we can go ahead and say that John the Baptist who's going to be the forerunner and point to Jesus Christ who is going to redeem his people, that redemption is so certain we can even though it's a future event, we can speak of it as already happening. And, and I gave you a couple of examples last week. We see it, it's actually it's all through the scriptures. Right? This is not some weird, isolated um, verb usage that we're just manipulating to make it say what we want it to say and to get us out of difficulties in the text. It's all over the scriptures. And I think uh, the two that I brought up last week was one where God is speaking to Abraham and say, See, I've given this land to your descendants. Well, when he said that, he had no kids. But God is saying, see, I have given this land to your descendants. At that time, Abraham didn't even have one child, let alone a bunch, any, let alone any descendants. And God is saying it's already a done deal. This land already belongs to your descendants. And then we, we considered the passage, probably the, the the one that's most commonly used, and that is in, in Romans chapter eight. Uh, 29 and 30. For those whom God foreknew, he also predestined. Those he predestined, he called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And we discussed the idea that glorified there is, is an event that has already occurred. And yet nobody's been glorified. Well, one person's been glorified. Nobody else has been glorified. Jesus has been glorified, but you haven't. But he's, he's talking about people who the justified are glorified. What a great passage of text. It is so certain that if you've been justified, your glorification, even though it's future, is so certain, you can just talk about it as though it's a reality. That God's saving purposes are so complete and so secure that we can talk about something that hasn't even happened yet as though it is a present reality. Let's just go ahead and call it a done deal. That is a great promise of God. God. God's plan and God's salvation is so secure that we can just go ahead and talk about glorification as though it's an already done event. And that's what's going on here. Zacharias sees the birth of the son, John, as being God working about out his plan of redemption. And so redemption is so certain. The birth of John is informs us then that God's plan of redemption is so certain I can go ahead and just talk about it as though it's already happened. And so the visitation of the person of His Son who redeems His people is so certain that let's just go ahead and say it's a done deal. When we talk about redemption, we should... Pause for just a moment and note how important this idea of redemption is in Scripture, especially both Old and New Testament. But redemption really has to do with this idea of being delivered or being purchased from an enemy. And it's a key biblical truth. We cannot get through the Bible without pausing and trying to get an understanding of what redemption is. And here we, we see a great passage of text in Galatians chapter four. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might do what? Redeem those who were under the law, that so we might receive the adoption of sons. And so one of the reasons Christ came, we're getting getting around to answering our initial question of the this idea of incarnation. And one of the reasons Christ came was to redeem those, to purchase back those who were under the law. And now we also have another passage of text. This one is in um, Revelation chapter 5, verse 9. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and break its seals, for you were slain and purchased. For God, with your blood, men from every tribe, tongue, and people from every nation. And so, why has God visited His people? He has visited His people to redeem them, to bring them out of the land of bondage and into the kingdom of His beloved Son. He has purchased them out from underneath the law that they might be adopted as sons and daughters of the Most High God. And so God visits His people. And when God visits His people, stuff happens, namely redemption occurs, and it is a certainty with the birth of John comes the certainty that the people of God will be redeemed. People might look at this particular passage of text and say, well, I don't think he's really talking about spiritual redemption. It seems like he's talking more about political redemption, deliverance from enemies. And certainly there are overtones here. Political overtones are not absent. I'm not going to spend a lot of time here with whether or not it's political or um, spiritual. I would say that Luke is, is recording this song and the idea here is that we are redeemed spiritually from our spiritual bondage. But also Luke does have a political idea in this. In other words, Christ is not only going to free us from our sins, but one day Christ is going to redeem us from this corrupt system. And when Christ comes again, folks the corrupt, oppressive governmental systems that destroy humankind, that impoverish and crush and are unjust will be done away with and the kingdom of God will reign and Christ will rule. By the way, that's a prophetic perfect. It's a future event. It has not happened yet, but it is so certain you can take it to the bank. Christ will come again, and Christ will establish a kingdom where he rules, and justice will be done away with. And so it's kind of interesting that Luke kind of ties, not kind of, Luke ties the first coming and the second coming together. He has redeemed us, that is, he has delivered us from our sins and he has redeemed us from a corrupt and vile, um, the corrupt and vile oppression that men inflict upon one another. And so we see this song by Zechariah that he's filled with the Holy Spirit. He prophesies, he says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and redeemed us. And then he continues to talk about the salvation that comes. He's raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. This simply speaks or pictures the work of Messiah as one of power and of strength. He's raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. This is how we know he's speaking about Jesus and he's not speaking about John the Baptist. Because John was not born from the house of David. Jesus was of the house of David. John was of the house of Levi. So we know that he's speaking not about his son, but he's speaking about somebody else specifically. He's speaking about the child that Mary will bear. And so he goes on. He's raised up the horn of salvation for us in the house of David as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophet from of old that we would be saved. There's an idea of salvation is... is, is. All over this song, that we would be saved from our enemies, from the hand of all who hate us, to show us mercy, show us the mercy promised to our fathers, and to remember His holy covenant, the oath that He swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve Him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before Him all of our days. And I should stop here because I think we're getting to the very heart of what's going on, at the very heart of this song. And so we see that Zechariah, filled with the Holy Spirit, prophesied. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. What has He done? He's visited us. What has the visitation uh, brought about? It's brought about redemption. But why are we redeemed? Is it just because God kind of likes us? He just wanted to redeem you for for no particular purpose, whatever. Why were you redeemed? Why were you saved? Yeah, exactly, to worship Him. And here it is. To serve Him without... We might serve Him without fear. God's deliverance has a goal. It is not just haphazard. I'm just going to deliver some folks and then they can just do whatever they want. No, I'm going to deliver you and my deliverance has a purpose. It has a goal. And the goal is that you might serve Him without fear. This, again, has very strong Old Testament allusions. This idea of, of serving God carries in the Old Testament, has the idea of worshiping God. We see this um, then throughout uh, Scripture, primarily in Exodus 3.12. I don't know if I put that up on the screen. Do I have Exodus 3.12? If not, that's where I'm going. Exodus 3.12 says this. This is Moses, by the way, talking about getting the folks... Or God speaking to Moses about getting the folks out of, out of Egypt. He says, He said, I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this holy mountain. So after you have gotten you out of Egypt, here's going to be the sign. You're going to come back to this mountain, and you are going to worship me. And we see then this same idea, this priority of worship. Um, as one of the primary uh, purposes of the book of the Exodus. In Exodus chapter 4, verse 23, we see the same theme. I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Let my people go that they may serve me. And so this idea of serving God and worshiping God are tied, are linked together. We see in, in the book of Zechariah, where Joshua, the high priest, is serving before, in the temple. He's serving before the Lord. Basically, he's functioning as a priest. He's worshiping the Lord. You have been saved. You have been redeemed that you might serve God without fear. Now, here's the thing. Service and worship are used interchangeably throughout um, the Old Testament, but I want you to understand this, and you all know this, but let me just remind you, worship is not limited to Sunday morning. And in fact, let me just give you a little pet peeve while I'm up here. (laughs) Worship is not even the music, or I shouldn't say not limited to the music. I have a real problem when I, when I. It's just a personal problem. All right, let me. I know you're not my therapist, but. <laughs> but I go to a conference and say, well, I'm a worship leader. I just. Uh, I, uh, what does that mean? Well, I, I, I do the music. Well, that doesn't make you. It means you're the music leader. The worship, we've limited to worship to that! I would argue, from the moment you come in, we are worshiping. The people are handing out the bulletin. They're worshiping God by serving you. And when we gather around with one another and we talk about the great things that God has done, before um, AJ plays the first song to tell you guys to sit down, basically we're, we're worshiping. When we're meeting one another, we're it's all part of worship. When we're praying and we're singing and we're we're interacting and we're taking communion and we're receiving an offering, this is worship. But worship is not limited to what we do here between 10 and, oh my goodness, it's 11.30. (laughs) Well, I was going to say what we do in this hour and a half or hour. But worship is not limited to what we do on Sunday morning. And it's certainly not limited to the musical portion of Sunday morning. I think we've done a disservice in our language by calling worship what we do here. And it is worship. It's just, let's not limit it to the music or to Sunday morning. God's deliverance, remember, Zechariah is singing because God visited his people and he has redeemed us, he has delivered us from our enemies and God delivers us, God's deliverance enables us to serve God with our whole life. So, the birth of John the Baptist is an indicator that God is redeeming his people to serve them with their whole being. I think a great example of worship is in, is in Romans chapter 1. Unfortunately, this is giving it a negative viewpoint, but I think it describes it well. Verse 25, 125. That well, I'll just go to verse 24. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonor of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. How are they worshipping the creature and not the Creator? They are worshipping. Worshipping the creature and not the creator through their whole lives. They've given themselves over to their passions and their lusts and their depraved minds. Everything about them, their actions and their thoughts and their deeds, are all uh, in towards bowing down to the creature that they have created. Their whole life is worship of this creator. Not just something they do at a particular time during the week. Their whole life is consumed with serving the lust of their minds and the lust of their hearts and the lust of their actions and their passions and their desires, everything is focused upon that. That's the idea then of, of serving or worship, but that's a negative sense. But God's called us to worship Him in a similar way. That is, all of our passions, all of our desires, all of our focus are, are directed towards Him. And so, God has delivered his people that they might serve him without fear. And then he says that they might in holiness and in righteousness before him all of our days. Notice the continual aspect of worship. In other words, you were redeemed for a purpose. And the purpose you were redeemed for is to serve and honor Christ. And you were to do that all of your days. Notice the moral qualities in holiness and righteousness. That is an attitude that honors God's laws. Worship then is being responsive to God's demands. It is not limited to the location, but it's tied to one's, one's entire life. It is continuous. It is all of our days. You were redeemed to worship the Lord. And, you were due to do, and we do that by honoring Christ in our bodies and in everything we think and say and do. And when we fall short of that, we fall upon our knees and we cry out, God have mercy upon me a sinner because I have not worshipped you as as, as I ought to have because you have redeemed me for the purpose of serving you all of my days. And when I fail to do that, have mercy upon me. And we do so in holiness and blamelessness do that in righteousness and holiness. I love this passage in Jude. Jude 24. Now to him, this is a great doxology. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, God is able to present you holy and blameless before him without fear. Well, what we've talked about now is really about the purpose of Christ's coming. Why the Incarnation? We asked that in the beginning. What's the problem? The problem, man's problem, is, is not an economic problem, nor is it an environmental problem. Man's problem is that he is estranged from God, and he lives in the loss of his passion, and he lives in a way that does not honor or glorify God. So what is the answer? The answer is we need a Savior, and that Savior is in the person of Jesus Christ. who will redeem us that we might serve him all of our days. Our text concludes then with an account of John the Baptist. What was John's role in all of this? John's role in all of this was to be a messenger. John's role was the pre the pre-runner. He was the the forerunner of all of this. Basically, we see John's purpose in verse 76, and you child will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will be, go before the Lord to prepare His way, to give knowledge of salvation to His people and the forgiveness of sins. John, you're going to go out in front of the Messiah, the Redeemer, and you are going to proclaim salvation to everybody who 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 comes along. You will be a messenger. You will prepare the way. This has again back in Isaiah where the forerunner is going to prepare the way and he's going to make the way smooth. Basically, when a dignitary would come into a town, a whole bunch of, basically, public works people would go out and they would clear the road. They'd, make, they'd fill in the potholes and they would make things nice and smooth and level so that the dignitary could come in without any hindrance. That's what John did. John went and prepared the road. He went and filled in the potholes. He went in and brought down the hills, and he brought up the valley so it was a nice, smooth um, road for the king to come in. That's what John did. He prepared the way so that when Christ comes, he could come in smoothly and make his presentation. So that's what John was going to do. He was going to proclaim forgiveness. The forgiveness that he he would proclaim would be one of repentance, that is turning from sin and turning to God. And he would be the forerunner of the one who then would give light to those who sit in darkness. I got a bunch more. I'll, I'll just stop. I'll just conclude with this then. We have here an account of the birth of John the Baptist. And here we have an account of Zechariah's prophecy, or Zechariah's song, the Benedictus, which is basically talking about both Christ and his son John. So what do we get from this? First of all, we see that John is born as one who is set apart for God's purposes. John is born. John is going to be set apart, and he's going to be used to bring about God's long-awaited purposes. John, then, the very birth of John, is evidence that God has visited his people, and John is going to point the way to the salvation that God has promised. That salvation is found in Mary's child, Jesus Christ, who we will talk about, whose birth we will talk about next week. So our question, why the incarnation? Well, there are many passages in in scripture that Jesus says, for this reason I came. But one of the reasons we can see that Jesus came was this. It is to redeem you and I, that is, to purchase us out of slavery, slavery of sin, to buy us back, to redeem us, to make us his own, to adopt us into his family for the purpose of serving him continually and without fear. And that is the solution to the problem. The problem is that we're broken. And we're broken because we are estranged from God because of our sin. Jesus came to fix that. I suppose one day at the end, all the political stuff will get taken care of. But for now, we begin with the spiritual aspect of it and God will redeem you and forgive you over your sin and call you his child and make you and bring you back into his household and redeem you that you might serve him without fear. Let's stand and pray. Lord, we thank you for your your love and kindness. um, Have mercy upon us, Lord. We recognize, Father, that we have gone astray, that we have not honored you as we ought to have, that perhaps we have worshipped the creature rather than the creator. We have looked around and seen stuff that we like and bow down to it. We bow down to our own lusts and ambitions and passions and desires and thoughts. We have not given the honor due your name. So I pray, Father God, this day that you would have mercy upon us. And I pray, Father God, that we would recognize that we have been redeemed. We've been brought out of the house of bondage and into into your house into the kingdom of your beloved Son. And so we thank you and we praise you and we ask that you would guide us this day. In Christ's name, amen.